This episode of The Football Faithful is brought to you by Carling. Now, we've all gone to the bar to buy a drink and carrying one glass, well, that's okay. Two glasses, that's all right too, but three and things start to get a little bit difficult. You need to start doing that little triangle and four, well, that's pro-level pint carrying. But Carling have come up with a solution. They've got a new glass that has got lots of little grooves in the top and a narrower bottom, so that means you can carry four no problem at all. So, next time you need to go to the bar to buy a round, make them a carling. Welcome to this week's episode of the Football Faithful Podcast. Now, the Premier League is almost upon us and uh, we've got a very special guest joining us this week to talk about some of the rule changes that have come into the game ahead of this year's season. My name's Sam Steen. Joining me, as always, is Peter Henry. Hi, Peter. How's it going, lads? We've got Cullen Buig there as well. Hi, lads. Special hi to Keith. And Keith, indeed. You've, you've spoiled it on me, Cullen. Our special guest this week is yeah. uh, former Premier League referee Keith Hackett. Keith Hackett, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, delighted. Uh, well, let's just jump right into it then, and let's start talking about these uh, these new rules. And just before we came on air, you, you were saying to Peter that you thought there was too many new rules, uh, along with the introduction of VAR. Uh, can there be too many rules? I mean, is, is it going to be confusing for the refs and the players? Is there going to be some kind of lead-in time where the refs are maybe a bit lenient while everyone, while everyone gets used to it? Or, or what way does that work? I really don't think that the... Uh the rules are going to give us the time to uh, to bed them in. I think we've got to go right from the uh, the whistle uh, and bring these into uh, enforcement. Um, I think the one that's going to really cause a lot of debate and confusion is around a handball. Uh, we saw it in the Women's World Cup being introduced, and now we're seeing a degree of confusion uh, brought about by the head of the PGMOL, Mike Riley who is in disagreement, I think, with the law and how it's written, and he's actually advising his referees uh, to take a, uh, a law level of sanction, if you like, be careful uh, when handball takes place. He's almost sticking, I think, at the moment. We'll see a little bit more clearer as the season progresses. But I think he's, he's tending to stick with the old law. So, um, so on, just, just, just for people who don't know already, the, the new law is that accidental or not, if the ball hits an attacking player's hand in the build-up to a goal, it will be disallowed. Is that it? That's right. I mean, uh, what they're saying very clearly is that uh, a goal in, in particular or a, a, an attacking move is stopped uh, when there is accidental handball. So... They've actually now said it doesn't matter if it hits the hand or arm. Um, in those situations, goes into goal, it, the goal's going to be disallowed. I think that's clear in itself. But when we get into the confusing errors, uh, areas, if you like, is the defender, the ball strikes him, goes into goal. We're actually saying that's a goal. And, and, uh, and then we're getting into trying to clarify... Uh, where the where the individual makes the body uh, larger. Uh, I mean, what he says is, uh, you know, if, if the uh, underarm has been has made their body unnaturally bigger, and uh, the player stops the ball, the ball strikes the hand, the arm. Uh, in that situation, it's going to be penalised. I think that's going to be fun when it comes to those types of decisions in the penalty area. Uh, and, and that's from the defensive side, is it, rather than for the attackers? Yes, I think the attacker is reasonably straightforward. Uh, you can't score the goal with your hand. You know full well that in the past, although it's unusual, the goalkeeper can't score a goal directly in that situation. So um, I think that what where the confusion will arise is round defending and ball to hand and, and where there's a lot there's a lot of latitude in a in a referee being able to determine if that player has made his body bigger or not. It's that area of 
grey that comes into the actual law itself that will create uh, a lack of uniformity in interpretation. Do you, do you think that VAR will help in that sense? VAR is, I'm very positive about VAR. I think VAR is there to rectify referees' errors. It's giving the referee a second chance. So when you consider there's 22 television cameras minimum covering a Premier League game, there's going to be occasions when the referee doesn't have a view and something takes place that needs to be brought to his attention on those four areas where they can come in, either a goal, a penalty kick, an offside or mistaken identity. So I'm happy with that. Uh, I think that Mike Riley's done a sensible thing and, and literally saying to the VAR people, look, don't come in too often. Come in when it is a serious and obvious error. Because we have seen in games leading up to the Women's World Cup and, and before that, where I think there's been an overindulgence by the VAR, almost wanting to say, look, I'm here, come on. I need to be involved in it. That's not the re- that's not what the VAR is there for. It's there to assist the referee. Would you rather that it was that the ref would call on it if he felt he needed a referral rather than they came in with something they've spotted? I think, you know, I, th- I think it is down to communication between the VAR and the referee and trust and working as a team. And, you know, a good assistant referee knows when the referee wants him to come in, and I think the VAR is the same. However, if it is clear and obvious that the referee's missed something, he's missed a penalty kick, or he's made an absolutely glaring error, then sure, VAR come in, and the outcome has to be that we get the correct decision. That's what the aim is. I mean, Mike Riley surprised me last year, because after years of saying that his referees were getting 94, 95% and beyond accuracy in decisions. At the back end of last season, he came out and said, actually, on the big decisions, we've only got 82% accuracy, which (laughs) means almost one in five of the big decisions in a game is admitting that his referees are getting wrong. Now, that certainly wasn't the case when I was the boss. And if a referee made that type of error, frankly, he was sitting on his hands the following week, uh, tough that that might be for him. But I wanted referees in form, doing the job to the best of their capacity. If they lost form, they wouldn't be used. And I think this has to be the case between referee and VAR and, uh, and measuring the performance of those guys in a game and the judgment of Mike Riley saying, yes, I'll use this team again or I'll put them to one side this week and not use them in the following uh, number of games. Uh, Keith, I wanted to ask you about there's a couple of the new rules that, that really caught my eye. So um, obviously the the cards for coaches is going to bring a whole new element of, of fun and drama to, to the game. And it will also, yeah, like I said, just completely add to the spectacle, the spectacle and also, I suppose, make the referee e- even more prominent um, than he normally is. And then there's also the rule about the um, so players can no longer interfere an attacking team can no longer interfere with a defensive um, wall wall from free kick. So I just wanted, yeah, if you you could give us a bit of clarity on that one, exactly how it would work, not necessarily in the traditional sense of, of a free kick being, you know, 25 yards out. Close, you know, yeah. c- central to goal, but m- more how it will actually. Because I think I read somewhere that the rule said there has to be three men in the in the wall. But how does that yeah. work for say, you know, free kicks on the side where where the, the attacking team is simply gonna gonna cross it in? Do they actually have to have three men? Because normally, you know, you'd only put two men in the wall like that. Well, if uh, if if the defending team put two players in the wall. And remember, they have a right to do that. They have a right to defend a free kick. And they are 9.15, 10 yards away. That has to be the case. Now, if they've got two players in the wall, then the the attacking players can join that wall. However, when when situation where wherever it is, a free kick is awarded to the attacking team and the defending wall has three or more players 
then the attacking team have to be a minimum one yard away. So it means that where we've seen a delay in the restart of a game at free kicks with players jostling with each other, forwards pushing defenders, defenders pushing forwards, that is now out. It means that, you know, we've got a free kick close to goal. The referee will march out his 10 yards and the Premier League will use the spray. And if that wall is made up of three or more players, which invariably it will be, then the attackers have to be a, a yard away. Now, what I have seen already is I've seen the tactics overseas. I, I was in China a week ago, and I saw there where the attacking team placed themselves a metre in front of the defending wall. And, and that was perfectly uh, OK in law. So I think that will speed up the process. I think that's a good law. On the technical area, I, I think... It's theatre, really. What we're saying is that occupants of the technical area now can be either yellow or red carded. But here comes the rub. If there is someone and he's not the manager of the team and, uh, and he does a misdemeanour and the referee or the player, the, the technical guy, doesn't give his name or you can't identify who the culprit is, the manager receives that yellow card. <laughs> That's good. So he's, he's, not, he's not committed an offence, but one of his uh, subordinates have. He gets the yellow card, unless he says it's Fred Smith, the physio there. <laughs> Give him that one. <laughs> so I think, I think that is... I hope that we won't lose... The, the fun, if you like, and the management that's required. I, I always like a step process. I think if if we've got a sensible approach, we'll get the manager calmed down. It, it's a hotbed, isn't it, that area? You know, he's, he, get, he's, he gets frustrated with what players does. He gets frustrated with what referees are doing. So I think we've just got to apply a little bit of common sense and not jumping with two feet, brandishing yellow cards. One other... Uh, Thing to, also to bring up, just to clarify, is that I can remember many years ago getting hit during the course of a game, getting hit with a ball, and it came off my backside to the centre forward. The goalkeeper had already committed at the shot, and the centre forward sidestepped the ball into the back of the net. Keith Hackett, referee, totally embarrassed. Assist. Apologised to everybody. I was part of the field of play. Now, what the law has now changed is that if the ball hits the referee at any part in the game, the game is stopped, and uh, if it goes into goal, the goal is disallowed, and it, it, a drop ball is awarded. So that is, an, again, another change that's come into effect this year. I mean, I can just see players <laughs> leathering the ball at the referee in an attempt to sort of break up play, no? <laughs> Well, that that could happen. The other thing is, um, of course, now he's given the drop ball, and this applies to all drop balls, because they're uncontested in future. So if if the, if the play stopped in the penalty area, and the uh, a drop ball is awarded, only the goalkeeper stands there, or a defender, one player, and all the rest have to be four yards away, four and a half yards away. And if it's an attacking player, the same applies. Now, let's assume that the goalkeeper's dropped the ball and the forward volleys it into the back of the net. It's not a goal. The ball's now got to be played by another player before, from a drop ball, it can be countered. So, oh, I, I let's think... wait for that to happen and see if the referee gets it right. Refs are going to get absolutely pelted with balls absolutely it's a, a great tactic to break things up I think uh, you mentioned common sense yeah. uh, Colm I know you had a question about uh, the substitution change yeah yeah hi Keith Colm here um, I just wanted to, get, I wanted to get your take as, as they were going through so many group changes here but I'm very interested in the substitutions and the fact now that the players can leave the pitch at the nearest point to them how do you think that's going to work bearing in mind Eric Cantona Kung Fu Kick at Setters Park in 1995 where he was up close to personal with the Palace fans. How do you, how do you think that's going to work if, if a player gets sent off in front of the UA fans? Do you think it's good or a bad idea? No, when you read that law and it was introduced and we saw it for the first time a few weeks ago, I immediately said, whoa, this is a big error. 
what they've done now is they've come out and clarified and, and slightly amended it. Because what they're saying is, look, referees, if there is a problem area around spectators, uh, you know, away team or whatever, away team spectators, home team spectators, then the referee has now got the leniency to be able to direct the player off in the normal manner. So I think that is a bit of common sense that's coming in, recognising exactly what you said. If I sent or substituted a player and he's, you know, he's upset the top at Anfield, he'd get an absolute roasting and he may, may just get something thrown at him. And it's avoiding that. So I'm happy that they've made a change and referees have got to be aware of that. But is it also to avoid Yeah. The other change that is, I think, working quite well in what I've seen, and that is goal kicks or free kicks inside the penalty area. Um, no longer does the ball have to leave the penalty area to be in play. So what it means is the goalkeeper can pass it to a colleague inside the penalty area and then the colleague can kick it up or boot it upfield or, or dribble it out of the penalty area. Um, I think you know, the referees have got to ensure that the attacking players are outside the penalty area when the goalkeeper, if you like, plays the ball. So that's another, another one to ponder uh, as, as the new season opens and continues. But I think it's a good load out. It, it stops this time-wasting element where we've seen the goalkeeper kick it short and not leaving the penalty area. Or if he's kicking it towards his own teammate and his teammate runs inside the penalty area and we have another goal kick. Do you think Manchester City will continue with their short passing from goal kicks now that that's implemented, that players can push into the penalty area? Well, I think that I think they'll have to stay out the penalty area, but for sure, Manchester City now can play even a shorter yeah. goal kick. It doesn't have to leave the penalty area. So I think we will see that. All, all this, frankly, is a lot of it. it. Like the free kicks, the goal kicks, the drop ball. All these are efforts to try and get more playing time. Because, you know, spectators, and I'm one of those people now, we're getting robbed of the amount of time that is actually played uh, because of undue stoppages. Pete, I just wanted to ask you one last question about, about the rule changes, and then we maybe we'll hear about, about your own career a bit. Um, it's it's around the penalty rule. We saw a lot of controversy um, where the, the rule about goalkeepers stepping off their line was was very harshly implemented, if we're all honest, at the women's world. Yeah. And I saw that, I, I think the general idea was in the Premier League to be a more common sense uh, approach. But uh, Mr. Kalina has since come out and said that he wants it um, applied to the letter of the law. Is that currently where we stand or has there been any change in that regard? Well, there's the, there's the confusion for our referees. You know, English referees, like any other country, have to referee in Europe and around the world as international referees. Uh, so someone like Michael Oliver, it, it's almost saying, well, Mike, right, Mike Riley wants it, the penalty kick administered this way. And Kalina, who after all is the head of referees in FIFA, uh, is saying, just a minute, I want the law applied as it is written, which is strict enforcement. So the IFAB have brought this change in really to stop goalkeepers jumping off the line a yard, a yard and a half before the ball's kicked and making saves. I think he's sort of saying, right, let's tag them to the goal line with one foot. Um, in reality, you know, as a referee, you can go either way with this. You, you know, uh, in terms of refereeing, I think we just want common sense. Uh, and we've, we've seen goalkeepers make good saves already and the kick having to be retaken because one foot slightly lifted off the line. Um, for me, I, I tend to adopt the Mike Riley view. And that is, look, apply a bit of common sense to this um, and, and, you know, punish those that are massively off the goal line um, rather than those that fractionally lift the heel and uh, it's not in contact with the goal line. But the law is specific, so I'm actually almost saying as a, 
a referee instructor, referees be a bit lenient, use a bit of common sense, remembering that the goalkeeper can still, you know, jump up and down, and not jump up and down, but move parallel to the to the goal line. And of course, he can't stand behind the line, he's got to stand on it. So it's a technicality, really. Uh, Keith, you mentioned already the time that uh, you, you set up a goal with your arse um, and I, I know that you were involved with uh, You Are the Ref for a very long time which was a, a long-running cartoon strip if people don't know about it which sort of posed interesting hypothetical situations that might happen uh, on the pitch and you'd explain what you do. Was there, was there ever a time in your career when something like that happened when you did think, Jesus, what do I do here? Oh, I think, I think there are many times where... As a young referee, you, you know, you're applying the laws and some of those you've not applied before. So you go through a fast learning curve. But I think one of the downsides of referees is that, you know, if, for example, in England, we don't have an annual test on the laws of the game. And and therefore, we're, we're hoping that 30,000 referees uh, on a Saturday are going to stroll out onto the Football League and apply the laws accurately. And in reality, that isn't the case because what they do is they put their own spin on how they'll interpret them. So, You Are the Ref was was certainly spawned before, you know, it was a book that was uh, in operation. I joined it in 81. I still continue to be heavily involved with You Are the Ref. And the idea is to give the spectators the opportunity to ask questions and for us to give the answers uh, and try to get a uniformity. But, you know, if I can just cut across my own experience, way back, I refereed a semi-final between uh, West Ham United and Nottingham Forest. And uh, I had, on the Thursday, we were called to a meeting as referees and informed that our interpretation of the denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity was wrong. So we'd been through a season as a group of English referees applying what we considered to be the right application of law. On the Thursday, we were informed that any foul committed and a player making a, a move towards goal would be punished. And it would be punished with a denial, if it, if a red card, if it denied an obvious goal. So here was I on Sunday refereeing the semi-final at Villa Park no one knew, apart from the match officials, that the law had been changed and interpreted differently. And off, off went Tony Gale. I tell you, the week before, Tony Gale would, would... I wouldn't have even chattered in his ear. Now, I've given him the red card. Oh, no. And ruined the game. Ruined the game. It absolutely ruined the game. Tony Gale was absolutely like gobsmacked. And I then followed up the, the, the weeks after that, receiving death threats and all that went with it. So for me, I believe that like this conversation, people will listen in and they'll have a better knowledge and understanding of the laws. And as a result, enjoy the game a little bit more and be a little bit more understanding of the referee trying to carry out his duties on the field of play. Uh, Keith, has Tony Gale ever forgiven you for that decision? Because I was watching no. the two of you recently. Ab- absolutely not. I mean, I chatted with him. I thought it was, uh, and we, we we did a film on, on it. Yeah. It was quite interesting because I tried to explain that. But of course, I wasn't on the receiving end. He was, you know, and, and for him, uh, he, he probably with some justification believes that that was his missed opportunity to go to Wembley. Um, I'd already been there in 81. I'd already refereed the cup final. So um, even now, today, uh, the spectators of West Ham, if, when I post things on Twitter and various other social media, you can guarantee that there's one or two West Ham supporters come in and, and go and bring it up. So off camera, I can tell you that Tony Gale shook my hand, but he wouldn't shake it on camera. <laughs> which, which sums it up, really. But I was Aunt Sally on that day, and I was Aunt Sally because the FA had not communicated to the stakeholders in the game. This particular law would be interpreted differently. 
And that's why it's so important that we we do have shows of this type. And we are, we are given the opportunity at every chance to be able to explain laws. And that's what I do at You Are The Ref. I, I do that openly. Um, and, and we get some fantastic questions. Um, I did a, a site in China, believe it or not, with interpreters two weeks ago. And after two hours, we left the show and 42,000 questions were still unanswered. And that's China. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's really interesting uh, story, Keith. I, I have one question. Um, might be might be a little controversial, but just something that I've noticed over many many years of um, watching the Premier League, and and I don't think I'll be the only one who's probably no, noticed it. Now I I don't claim to be a lip reader, but I do know sometimes I see very high profile. Um, England internationals a lot of the time, the likes of Wayne Rooney and John Terry over the years, and the language they use towards referees isn't very nice. Um, And I think, sometimes I see foreign players say a lot less and get booked for dissent. Do you think subconsciously or whatever it might be that at times high-profile English players they know they can push it a lot further with referees, and they aren't dealt with with the same degree of of, um, of punishment. I I think that when uh, when they changed the law and said foul and abusive language, uh, it it almost opened the gates for players to use the F word, which was which is used sadly in every, everyday language, and so they they. The lawmakers decided, look, this is industrial language and you're, you're in an industrial situation. Um, my, my view is that uh, I think that, you know, sometimes I used to run alongside players having a go at me and you could see them visibly coming out with a bit of bad language. And I, I used to say, look, my son's watching this game and, and yours in the future might do the same. Don't ruin the image. Don't ruin your image by doing that. And, you know, Wayne Rooney is a very, very skillful player and really a nice guy off the park with spectators. Sometimes it's frustration. But I also think that sometimes referees in this area have been massively too lenient. You know, in England, uh, we're trialling. I think even now semi-professional football next year will operate with a sin bin. And, we, and that has been brought in to try and curb dissent and win back the authority of the referee. What it does mean is that a referee, a player next year in junior football, grassroots football, can actually get three yellow cards before he's dismissed. He can have a sin bin. Um, He can have a a reckless challenge for which he gets a yellow. And then another sin bin at that point, he's off. But, uh, you know, this sin bin idea has been proven to be quite adequate and quite effective at grassroots level, at a very low level. Let's see how it operates. It may come into the senior game. But you're right. I think some of our referees are weak and don't deal with it. On In rugby, I see a completely different approach by the referees. And, uh, and they retain their authority, whereas we allow ours to be eroded. We need to toughen, toughen up a bit. And some of the referees who are not performing well or are out of form, the boss of the PGMOL needs to bring in a level of accountability, move some on and, uh, and drop a few if they don't come up to uh, the standards required. Uh, Keith, just something a bit different here. Uh, you had such an esteemed and long career. You mentioned the 1981 FA Cup final there. So you refereed so many games and saw so many players. Did you ever get time to step back and appreciate the quality of play on show? Because you were refereeing at such elite level. And if so, is there any player in particular that stood out for you over the years that you can say, wow, that was incredible to share a pitch with him? You know, I've got the best best seat in the house and they pay me for that seat. Um, And yeah, I've just run along sometimes, you know, uh, I refereed George Best, believe it or not, towards the end of his career. But 
you know, this guy just had such skill. But, it, you know, we, we'd played 20 minutes in a game. He was playing for Fulham versus Stoke. It wasn't very good weather. He ran alongside me. He just stood there, looked at me and said, look, Keith, can you uh, can you just call a halt to this thing? Because this is not enjoyable. And uh, first of all, it's gobsmacked that he called me by my Christian name. And, and therefore, everything about George Best was twice as good because... He was, if you like, an iconic player living up to his, his reputation on the field. The guy who I, I really got on with was Kenny Dalgleish because, you know, I've refereed the likes of Maradona, uh, Bess, Beckenbauer, Platini, uh, and many, many more internationals. Um, and I've been very fortunate to do that. Dalgleish stands out for me as one of the players that just put in 100%. I never saw him, in, and I refereed Liverpool a lot of times in my career. I was on the league for about 23 years. So I came across this guy when he started. Uh, he'd come down from Celtic, and he was just a phenomenon. He, he just, like, had an engine that was unbelievable, but a mean streak in terms of in front of goal. If he had a chance, he put it in the back of the net, and I could sit back and, and admire it. I could admire those skills. Hoddle, Platini, I, there were similarities between the two. They just stroked the ball. Um, there, there was nothing, uh, you know, that you could see from behind the player, the, 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 if you like, what's in front of him, where players were moving. And Hoddle and uh, Platini were two players that had great vision. And a great skill of being able to almost caress the ball forward on, onto the head or, or feet of, of one of his own team players. So Maradona, uh, I refereed for a, a short spell in uh, Wembley in 88. Um, low centre of gravity, probably the best side times of his career had, had passed on, but nonetheless great. Then you had Rummenigge, uh but the, the story I'll, I'll, that always comes to mind is I, was, I refereed in the North American Soccer League for about eight weeks as a guest referee. And I was on my way to uh, referee New York Cosmos against Vancouver Whitecaps. And, and there was traffic hold up in the, in the Lincoln Tunnel. And all of a sudden, I saw this guy run past. Um, and the taxi driver suddenly said, that's Carlos Alberto. And he winds the window down and shouts to him. And, uh, and had an exchange in, a, in obviously a foreign language. And Alberto turned and, and joined my cab. So he was sat alongside me. He was going to play for New York Cosmos and I was going to referee it. And uh, we, we didn't exchange just the smiles, body language, if you like. And then suddenly, 100 yards short of the stadium, I suddenly wrote, thought to myself, not great getting out the car with Carlos Alberto, the referee. So I stepped out the car 100 yards short and walked to the stadium. But uh, that, that was a, a moment of madness, really, that that should happen. Along, and just the, the vision of a guy who lifted the World Cup, uh, an iconic player. Yeah, yeah, and not just on the pitch, but next to you in the cab. Keith, that's a, a fantastic story yeah. and, a, and a great place to leave that. Uh, I know you're waiting to go and actually watch a football game yourself, so uh, we won't keep you any longer. Um, just thank you so great. much for joining us, and uh, well, hopefully we Pleasure. might get you back on again sometime. Thank you. This episode of The Football Faithful is brought to you by Carling. Now, we've all gone to the bar to buy a drink, and carrying one glass... Well, that's okay. Two glasses, that's all right too, but three and things start to get a little bit difficult. You need to start doing that little triangle and four, well, that's pro-level pint carrying. But Carling have come up with a solution. They've got a new glass that has got lots of little grooves in the top and a narrower bottom, so that means you can carry four, no problem at all. So next time you need to go to the bar to buy a round, make them a Carling.
Big thanks to Keith Hackett for joining us on the show today. And uh, not much longer, well, not much left in, in today's show, but we're going to take a bit of time just to sort of look at where the big clubs are and some of the big transfers uh, that have happened as we come towards the end of the window and the beginning of the new season. And Peter, I'm going to start with you because actually not much happened. <laughs> No, it's been a really strange window. Like it closes next Thursday. Um, you know, it, it's it's Tuesday night now when we're, we're recording. So, you know, less than ten days. Um, it it feels like it's never really got going. I think as well, it's been a bit weird because you know the Afcon and Copa America ran up until right until very recently. Like the Afcon was still going on when teams were on preseason. So. It kind of felt like the football never stopped and the transfer window never really kicked in, if you know what I mean. And yeah, it just seems, it seems like most of the big clubs haven't really got going in, in the market. Yeah, yet. It's, it's, it's funny um, because like before the, the window opened, there was all this talk like Hazard's going to go and there's going to be all these major moves coming out of Madrid. They're going to spend loads of money. There's going to be loads of money and players in the market. It's going to be insane. And then, yeah, Madrid did their business early. But after that, there hasn't really been much of anything really, has there? I mean, I think, no. aren't Villa the top, the fifth top spenders this this window in, yeah. in Europe? It's, yeah. it's really It's really bizarre and even more bizarre thing about the whole thing is is when the season ended last year it was pretty obvious that okay Chelsea have their transfer ban so that ruled them out but you know Liverpool and Man City were, were streets ahead so like Spurs, Arsenal uh, and, and Man United needed to get in there and you know they really need to to rebuild their squads massively um, and they you know they've made a few signings but things just haven't really kicked off and now they're all being linked with big moves coming into the last week. Um, they're saying it's an inflated market, but are you realistically going to get players cheaper when you leave it this late? It, it's bizarre. Like I, I remember for so long that, you know, it might be an exact science I'm speaking here, but generally the big team that went out and got the business done earliest had the most successful, successful season the next year. Like you look at Man City 2017-18 when they bought the whole new, new defence and goalkeeper kind of straight straight um a, a, you know a week or two after the window opened and then even liverpool i know they came second last year but they had this, you know they had 97 points and and they had you know they they won the champions league they kind of went bing bang bosh right at the start of the transfer window last time out as well so yeah it it's been it's been really weird it just doesn't quite feel it's it just feels weird to say the window's closing and even, and weird as well to think that the that the the season starts essentially this weekend with, with the Charity Shield, you know. So, um, yeah, one of the most bizarre transfer windows I can remember. It's it's just never felt like it's got going, you know. Colm, is there is there anyone that you're sort of in any way excited about or any any move that's happened anyway so far that it's kind of caught your eye? You know, I was reading before we, um, we came on tonight and I'm, you know, I'm very conscious that this is uh, Tuesday night, as Peter said, 10 days before the window closes, but... At this very moment in time, it looks like United are very much in the hunt for uh, Dybala from Juventus with uh, a swap for Lukaku. Now, this conversation could date massively in a couple of days and that won't come to fruition. But that's really about it. Like, I mean, if I'm looking at it as a, if I try to be objective and, and stand away from it and look at it, I would say Manchester City have done good business with Rodri, uh, potentially a long-term replacement for Fernandinho. If that works out, of course, you never know. Um, as a Man United fan, Two decent signings in Wan Bissaka and Daniel James. Absolutely decent signings. A lot of pace. Wan Bissaka has proved it in the Premier League last year. Uh, Daniel James, we'll see, but in pre season, he looks very impressive with his pace. So, in that sense, definitely uh, kind of exciting. Then you have Arsenal with uh, on the verge of signing Pepe, Nicolas Pepe, which I think Manchester United could have, really could have done with him. And not so much Arsenal, but they. They continue their uh, their protocol, finding you know tricky forms who possibly will flatter to deceive. But um, they have you know and several lots as well. They sign Arsenal, so they've done okay. But like yeah, I, I'm nitpicking here, Sam. This is really tough to pick one. Um, and as Peter nailed it. Like it's it's such it's been such a strange close season. It kind of like that that Champions League final seems like so recently that Liverpool Spurs game and like. I wouldn't mind a few more weeks till we get going. Like, we're not going to get that. We're going to start it this weekend with the Community Shield. And, you know, it's, it's like everything. Once it gets going, you get into it and we'll be laughing in a couple of weeks' time. 
but it's just come around so fast. We're still quite new to this summer window uh, shutting already before the season starts. I think it's only the second summer of it. So I think in our, even subconsciously, we're kind of waiting for the 31st of August, but it's next week as we speak now. And I just don't know what's going to happen between now and then. You know, even the Gareth Bale stuff we're talking internationally, that move to China was kind of interesting. The most interesting thing about that was the fact that it fell through. If Neymar, Neymar returns to Barcelona, it's kind of like, oh yeah, whatever, really. Um, Griezmann looked like it was going to be the saga of the summer, and that was finished in no time. One of the earliest completed transfers. So it's been a really strange one. I, I was reading recently, I think it's the quietest summer transfer window since 2010. Wow. Um, yeah, and it, it, it just clubs aren't spending as much, I suppose. It Do comes down yeah, is, is that a backlash to the massively inflated prices? Are clubs starting to go, maybe, maybe look at like the, the, the TV money possibly drying yeah. up or something like that, you know, in the future? Are they, are they starting to tighten their belts maybe slightly with a, with a view to not having as much money to spend in the future? Well, I think that is one element, right? But the other element is possibly even the opposite point, is that not many teams in the Premier League, they need to sell. You know, the 20 teams are fairly wealthy yeah. these days. Because of the TV deal you just mentioned, which in, I admittedly is drying up soon, but as we speak, like right in 2019, let's say, it's looking good for all 20 teams, and that might change. But if you go back to previous decades, the Premier League, and in, in our lifetime, the last 20 years, you know, it was always a dominant club. Back then it was a top four, even top two in certain seasons. And the rest of the league were quaking their boots when it comes to summertime because the big boys would come after the smaller clubs, bigger players. And that's, of course, is still the case. If the biggest teams come after you and you're with a smaller club, you, you want to go. Like Riyad Mahrez, for instance, there, and Leicester had won the league. But I think it happens less because clubs just don't really need to sell. Um, Crystal Palace are doing their best to keep all the Wilfred Zaha at this time. He's still with Palace. But, you know, they got they let Juan Basaka go. You could say, like, they got 50 million for Juan Basaka. They'll already be wealthy enough for staying up. And do they really need to sell Zaha? Of course, Zaha himself wants to go. But there's not that great need for clubs to sell. Yeah, and yeah. Like, Fing- it, fingers it, crossed Leicester can hang on to uh, Harry Maguire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But see, lads, this is what makes it all the more bizarre for me is that so many of the, like I said, so many of the clubs need to sp- need reinforcements if they're going to be competitive next year. Like even the, the, the people below, the Leicesters and the, uh, the Everton's and stuff, the people who, West Ham have actually had a really good window. They've signed some quality players for now. I, I feel like we say that every summer. Yeah, well, no, I, I genuinely think they, they do have, yeah, that's kind of true, but I genuinely think they have had, you know, it's not Jack Wilcher who inevitably got injured for the whole season. It's, you know, Pablo Fornals, one of the best young Spanish midfielders, and Sebastian Haller, who, you know, is a quality player. There's no denying it. For me, the, you know, you pick holes in all the, the, the top six clubs. Um, for me, Man City do need to sign another centre-back. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, I'd still be worried as a Man United fan that you know Harry Maguire will go there if, if they can offer him and and Leicester uh, as much money. United have been a disaster in my opinion. Um, of course, I'd say that because I'm a very pessimistic Man United fan. But um, you know, it was obvious that we needed to 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 sign low uh, at least four or five players this season. Uh, or sorry, this summer. Uh, the most alarming thing as well is that we haven't got rid of any of the deadwood. We, we're, we're like, we can't, we can't cause we, we are, we've run the club so badly and put yeah. so many average players on big whopper contracts. Yeah. That's massively worrying. Um, you know, as of now, we're supposedly close to Harry Maguire. Um, Harry, we're supposedly close to Harry Maguire, Bruno Fernandez. Why they haven't got Bruno Fernandez, at the start of the summer, if they want to sign him now, I don't know. Um, Harry Maguire, it's crazy money, 80 million. Harry Maguire is a good player, but him to be the most expensive defender in the world, very difficult to get your head around. Dybala is, I wouldn't touch with a barge pole. Um, I think Dybala is a fabulous player. I love watching him play, but he's not suited to the Premier League, in my opinion. And he doesn't want to move to Man United, which is the whole premise of Solskjaer saying we want young players who want to play for Man United. They're going to go in there and offer him all the money in the world to get him to come to a club he doesn't actually really want to come to. So that just sounds like Sanchez a very, very bad. 
Yeah, it sounds like a very but exactly. He do, he does. He's not suited to the league, and he doesn't want to come. So how they think that could work, I don't know. But like I said, like Daniel James, people say it's exciting, lads. Not a, do you know who United had to fight off to get Daniel James? Leeds United. Unless like it could just be they could have just unearthed a gem. But I'd be worried by the fact no other top club. He was even linked to Daniel James. He's the kind of player you sign for 20 million, which is the equivalent of three or four million a few years ago. And you kind of stick him in the reserves and you take a punt on him. He's a gamble. You know, he's not someone you're signing to go into into your first team. Um, you know, six, yeah. six to eight months championship under his belt. I'm sorry. like uh, um, you know, Lee Sharp was a nobody in 1988 with Torquay United. And look what Fergie did with him. The Sharpie Shuffle. <laughs> yeah, Listen, if yeah. you can bring something like the Sharpie Shuffle to the table, I'm, I'm so... Ah, here. <laughs> it's like. It could be us. No, you know, like, uh, that's what I mean. There's so many... Like, Spurs really, you know, after... Spurs needed to spend quite heavily this summer because, you know, we talked about that squad of players being flogged. Um, once again, you know, they've sold Trippier. That was a bizarre move, really, to Real Atletico Madrid. Didn't see that. Danny Rose is on the way out as well. So... You know, we might get a bit of Levy time action, but that's a bit weird. Arsenal, like you said, kind of with their forty million budget, the 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 cynic <laughs> in me said, the cynic said the cynic in me says that that's the opposite of Man United's uh, transfer strategy, and that Man United say we're loaded, but no, we're not going to pay you much money for players. Whereas Arsenal are going, we're broke, so we can only pay you a little bit, you know, and then they go and. I know that they're going to pay the Pepe deal in instalments, but still, it's, it sounds hilarious. They only had 40 million to spend, but they've spent 70 on Nicolas Pepe. And, you know, they bought this centre-back. But again, they need a centre-back now. They don't need a young lad to be sent back to France. Um, if they get Tierney as well, it's good, but they need a defender. Um, is, so is it, it just, the same? Is it like, has anyone done anything or enough to close the gap on the top two? Has oh. anybody really threatened in the positions they really, really need to? Yeah, that's true as well. You know, know what I mean? Like, like Arsenal need a centre-back because Chelsea's their only decent defender, centre-back, really, and he's he's gone on strike, you know? So it, it, it's just... If, if you're a decent centre-half, you're not going to Arsenal. That's the problem they have because you're going to have to do all the work yourself. So there's yeah, no yeah. decent centre-half who's genuinely going to improve them that he's going to go. That's why they got Saliba from San Etienne. Because they, want, they, they can only attract the younger lads. Uh, and it's the same, this is what Manchester United are having a problem with now. Like you say, we can't sell the Deadwood and we can't attract the better younger players. Because why would you want to go to United? Case in point, you know, it's like, it looked like in June, it actually genuinely looked like at one point in June we might actually sign him. And I was thinking in my head, what are you doing? Like, why are you signing for United? <laughs> Are you mental? And then thankfully someone, for his sake, someone had a word in his ear and he's off now to learn how to defend properly with Juventus. But like, that's, that's what it's become now. And Arsenal and Manchester United are, will be remembered, you know, in the great rivalries of Fergie against Wenger. Because nowadays they are way behind. And now the modern equivalent of those two teams and eras that I mentioned, Liverpool, Liverpool and Man City. And between the two of them, they signed one player who would probably get into the team, and that's Rodri, so far as we speak this summer, because they have such strong squads. And like Sam posed the question, has anybody strengthened to challenge them? Not really. Not yeah, really. And Dombele is a good signing for Spurs, another midfielder they have. Like, you're, you're, that's a stretch, though. That's a stretch still, you know? So, Colm, I do think, though, if I'm honest, as we sit here now, you know, a lot can change. Like I said, I can't see United sign the three players I mentioned and spunking 200 million in this space for a couple of days, but stranger things have happened. Um, you know, a lot of clubs might move for players, but one thing I do think is I think Liverpool may have missed a trick by not really strengthening. They've hired, you know, they signed two 16-year-olds, Harvey Ellis, they, and this Dutch kid, the centre-back, Van der Berg. Um, but I think they've really missed a trick by not bringing in a, a couple of kind of... Um, hungry young players to complement their, their front tree in midfield, maybe. I know Brewster is there. We talked him up last week, but it's just Liverpool is such a strong start in 11, but the, the back four and with, with the cover for the, for the full backs, the back four and the front tree, if any one of them is missing, 
they they really drop down. Mar, Bar maybe Matip, that's interchangeable with Lovren, but you know, Trent Alexander, Robertson, Van Dyke, Allison, and the front three, if any of them are out, it, it drops pretty massively. And with the front three especially having been away till very late playing international football, it's going to be hard for them to hit the ground running. And as we saw last season and over the last two seasons with Man City, you can't start slowly because they'll they'll be pulled away. They'll be you know ten points clear after seven or eight games. So I I you know Klopp was saying they don't kind of making out in the press the other day. They didn't have the money because they they spent an awful lot in the two transfer windows beforehand. But I think they really need because they there's even though they pushed City so close last season, City's squad is still at a different level to Liverpool's, and I don't think Liverpool have really strengthened their squad, and that's why I think City will just absolutely run away with it next season. Yeah, it, it, it you know they they did push them all the way, but at the same time they were lucky with injuries. And yeah, stuff but as well. City still also cruised it and didn't have De Bruyne for half the season. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they, just, they just did it. It wasn't like they were under any kind of mad pressure or anything like that. Claps uh, yeah, only retort. Sorry, Sam. Claps only retort to this is that they have Joe Gomez and Alex Oxley Chamberlain back this season. Yeah, so, that's true. You know, he's he's throwing the line like, oh, it's like two new signings. But we know that those two lads, as good as they are, they're not going to close the gap. You know that extra yard that they need to surpass City. So I would, I kind of fear, for like Peter does, like it's going to be like the season before last where City ran away with the league. I think last season might be an outlier, but who knows, like, you know. Well, next week we're going to look into, or we're going to preview the season in a bit more depth. We'll talk about the transfer window. We'll talk about the uh, charity slash community shield or whatever it's called uh, at the moment. And we'll also do a, a full-blown sort of prediction pod where we make our predictions for the forthcoming season and uh, and then embarrass each other throughout the rest of the season with our bad predictions. Um, if our past experiences in predictions are anything to go by, Peter, they should be inaccurate I think it's fair to say <laughs> <laughs> anyway thank you so much for uh, for listening we will be back again as I said next week so make sure you subscribe on all the places where you can listen to podcasts we will uh, pop up every single week there and uh, go along to thefootballfaithful.com for more great football content thank you Peter cheers lads enjoyed that thanks Colm thanks all thanks to uh, Keith Hackett for joining us and goodbye from me we'll see you next time <laughs>